All right, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, please. A couple of things before we get started on the sermon. Uh, one, if you have not read this book from the bookstall, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. Uh, our phones are changing us. We may not realize it, but they are. This is a book that talks about that not only from a biological and psychological perspective, but also from a theological perspective. It's incredibly helpful and incredibly easy to read. I'd encourage you to check it out over there at the bookstall. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. Uh, number two, actually let me switch microphones. One distraction that you may notice this morning is I keep fidgeting with my headset. Our guest preacher last week may be the only human being with a head larger than my own. And now I can't seem to uh, adjust my microphone accordingly. Mike, am I good up there? Can you guys hear me out there? Everything good? Okay. And number two, I know this may not be scandalous to some, but I have got to take my coat off. I'm not feeling super great this morning. And uh, I preached at the county jail. And I think I may have kind of overexerted there, and I'm just kind of feeling about 70% right now, so I feel like I'm claustrophobic. Bear with me. All right. If I roll my sleeves up, you'll know something seriously wrong. In Ephesians chapter 4, let's pray. Father, we know that when we are weak, you are strong. I feel weak right now, but I know that your word is strong. It is entirely sufficient to build up your people this morning. So we pray that you would move, that you would speak, that your spirit would be active in the life of the members of this church this morning. And we ask that you would make us look more like your son, Jesus Christ, before we leave this room. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. A few thousand years ago, Greek philosophers like Herodotus they noted the vast differences between the main cultures of the world, particularly the main cultures that they knew in the world. The Greeks, the Persians, the Egyptians. These philosophers noted the vast difference between these cultures in ethnicity, in language, in philosophy, in religion. And he also noted that the fringes of these cultures would overlap and they would touch and they would intermingle at certain points but they were never able to fully coexist in the same geographic space under the same governmental rule, nor did they try to. It was sort of inherently understood that people so different couldn't live in the same place under the same government. In order to coexist, it was thought one group must conquer, the other group must be subject, one group must be in power, the other group must assimilate. Pluralism, as we know it here today in America, seemed highly unlikely. We would all do well to remember that America is itself an experiment, the first of its kind in many different ways. America is the first nation to truly try to balance freedom, democracy, and assimilation. It's a volatile experiment. Having so many different religions, cultures, ethnicities, all in the same place, under the same rule, it's like trying to juggle a chainsaw and a butcher knife and an anvil and a flaming torch, and it just feels like they can't all possibly stay in the air forever. Will we make it? Will the American experiment succeed? This is all we've ever known, so it feels like it has to succeed, but that's not necessarily true. 
Is the kind of unity that the founding fathers sought after and planned for even possible? Can Muslims and Jews and Christians peacefully cohabitate? Can you be both Mexican and Nigerian and Russian and American at the same time? Can you be pro-life and pro-choice and live in the same neighborhood? Well, I think time will tell, and I'm hopeful. But there is a different kind of institution that from the outside looking in seems highly unlikely to succeed. It seems like it is almost guaranteed to fail, that there's, there's just no way it can possibly hold together. And of course, here I'm talking about the church. How can the body of Christ have room for both Jew and Gentile? How can it have room for young and old and rich and poor and educated and ignorant, sick and healthy, married and single, childless, and those with 17 kids, homeschoolers and public schoolers, seamster, seamstress and sailor and soldier? How can we all coexist without being torn apart by rivalries and dissensions and gossip and slander and pride and anger and malice and deceit and hatred and idolatry and ignorance and heresy and abuse? How will these things not tear us apart? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's the point of our sermon this morning. Let's look at the text. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Follow along as I read aloud. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Ephesians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? For the first half of the sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 where Paul lays out the foundation of the church's unity. In verses 4 through 6, Paul is going to point out seven different phrases that begin with one. One Lord, one faith, one, right, all that, one baptism, one God. And here what he's doing is he's showing us the ways in which we are already unified as a church, then in the second half of the sermon, in verses 1 through 3, so we're going to start with verses 4 through 6 and then work backwards, we're going to look at how Paul teaches us to live together in unity as a church. How, how do we live out this unity that we have been given? So let's look at verses 4 through 6 together. In order to do that, we have to remember uh, some things that Paul taught us back in chapter 2. So let's flip back on, to back, back, on back to chapter 2 and... Uh, in chapter 2, what we're going to see is that Paul has already taught the Ephesians that their unity is a done deal. Paul has already taught the Ephesians that unity has been accomplished by Christ on the cross. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that Jesus himself has given us peace in the church. Look there. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there was two, now there's one because of what Christ has done. There, there was disunity, and now after Jesus moves, there is unity. 
In verse 15, Paul says that there is now one new man. There's not two men, there's one man in place of the two. Another picture of unity. In verse 16, Paul says that this unity was accomplished by Christ on the cross. In verse 18, Paul says, now that there is one body, everyone who is a part of this one body has the same access to God through the one spirit. Look at verse 18. It says, for through him, that's Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So this is the ground of our unity. It's already done. It's already accomplished. So when you come to what Paul says in these seven one clauses or seven unity clauses, when you begin and you see this one body language, it should cue you back into what you already heard in chapter two. Remember, we tend to just kind of take chunks of the Bible and we just read them in, in isolation and we don't think about what's already come. But if, if you just sit down and read the book of Ephesians all the way through, as Paul says one body, you should be thinking about what he already taught you earlier in the letter about the two people coming together to form one body in chapter 2, verse 16. Then Paul moves on to talk about one spirit, right? And this one spirit is what he talked about in chapter 2, verse 18. There was Jew and Gentile, they become one, and now this one spirit, the spirit of God, inhabits that one body. You see the same kind of language in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul writes this, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Next. Paul moves on to talk about our one hope. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And this one hope is just the hope of salvation. There's not really a whole lot of deep things to say about this. Our greatest hope is that when we die, we don't just go into the shadow lands. We go to be with Jesus. And this is the hope that Paul has already been talking about throughout the entire letter. And here again, he's reminding them that this is our singular hope. Then Paul moves on to talk about our one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One Lord just refers to Jesus, okay? Jesus has already been called Lord 22 times in the book of Ephesians up to this point in the first half. And so here Paul is again just saying, listen, we only have one Savior. Then Paul talks about the one faith. What does that mean? Is he referring to our subjective experience of trust? No, here the language of faith refers to the contents of the gospel. It refers to what we need to believe in order to be saved. And you see the same kind of language in other places in the Bible. So if you look at Jude, uh, Jude 3, there's not really a chapter or a verse number. In Jude 3, uh, Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. There, that, that, the faith is just to contend for the gospel. It's just a synonym for the gospel. Then Paul moves on and he talks about the one baptism. Now, uh, don't let the modern controversies and debates surrounding baptism influence the way you read this. Here, Paul is not thinking about uh, believer's baptism versus infant baptism because infant baptism didn't exist. Okay, Paul is also not thinking about dunking baptism versus sprinkling baptism because that controversy didn't exist. What Paul is talking about here is the 
spiritual phenomena in which believers are united to Christ and his people through faith. And when we baptize people in this baptismal, that is just an outward expression of this inward reality that Paul is talking about. Finally, in verse 6, Paul speaks of the one God who is the Father of all. Now, when Paul says that this one God is the Father of all, it's difficult to know if he's talking about all Christians because he talks that way in chapter 1, verse 2. Or is he talking about all of mankind? Because he kind of talks about God that way in chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, after reading all the commentaries, my answer to you is I don't know. It's hard to say, but it seems like in the next clause, when he says God is over all and through all and in all, this would lead us to a more universal interpretation. Okay. We've kind of kept our noses like really closely glued to the text and we're looking at this word and that word and this word. We've done like seven word studies in the first 15 minutes of a sermon. That can be kind of brutal. So let's step back, take a breath, and remember what what this is all about. Why is Paul talking about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God? It's because he's trying to teach us about unity. He's trying to teach us that there is a unity that we already possess in the Lord because of the gospel, that we now have to live out. There aren't two lords. There's one lord. There's not one lord for this faction in the church and another lord for that faction in the church. You know, one for Calvinists, another for Arminians, one for cessationists, another for continuationists. There's not one lord for women and another lord for men. There's not one lord for Jew and another lord for Gentile. There's only one lord, one savior in the church for blacks, whites, Mexicans, Asians, everybody. There aren't two faiths. There's only one gospel. There's not a gospel of the Republican Party and there's not a gospel of the Democratic Party. There's one faith delivered one time. There's only one baptism. There's only one spirit, one body, one God. And what Paul is trying to uh, help you to see here is through this accumulation, accumulation of one unity clauses is that our Christian faith is completely unified. There's no aspect of our of our Christian experience. There's no aspect of the gospel. There's no aspect of God that is in any way fractured. It's all one. Now, it's worth pausing here to reflect on the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. I started off by telling you that Paul has already taught us that the unity of the church is done. It's accomplished. Christ purchased it at the cross. Yet in verse 3, Paul says that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Well, which one is it, Sean? Did God sovereignly accomplish this unity? Is it a done deal? Or do we have to do something to keep it up, to to maintain it? Well, I I think the answer is both, right? And this takes us back to the tension that we feel all throughout the Bible about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It should make us think about Philippians 2. Do you guys remember that in our Wednesday night Bible studies? If you weren't here for that, Paul tells the Philippians, he says, listen, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's your responsibility. Be afraid. Be so afraid for your own soul that you tremble, that you shake. You need to make sure you're doing your part as a responsible agent. But then he goes on to say this, for it is God who wills and works within you. Your working is grounded in his work. 
And don't you see that same phenomena here in the text today? Don't you see that our working to maintain unity is not what secures it in any ultimate sense? We're just working in light of the work that God has already done. God accomplished the unity, and now we do our part as responsible agents to maintain it. Now, if that doesn't fully resolve all the tension in your mind, I would just say, welcome to the club. That's what it means to believe in a God who is completely sovereign and human beings who are totally responsible. I'm sure we'll get to sit down with Jesus and ask him of how this all really works out when we get to heaven. You see the same kind of thing later in chapter 4 where Paul talks about the Spirit. He tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of our God. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, Paul already told us that we have been sealed with the Spirit of God for the day of redemption. What does it mean to be sealed with the Spirit into the day of redemption? It means the Spirit's in us and He's not going anywhere. Yet, Paul says we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? So even though the Spirit's in us and He's not going to go anywhere because God has sovereignly placed Him there to keep us and to guide us, we still have to live in a certain way in light of the Spirit's presence. And the same thing is true of our unity. Even though God has given us a real unity, there is a sense in which we have to live in light of that unity to not undermine it or to weaken it in any way. If you ask the question, can the church lose her unity given to her by God? I think it depends on how you would answer these following questions. Can the bond of peace, which was established by Christ on the cross through the shed of his blood, excuse me, through the shedding of his blood, can that bond of peace ever be broken? And the answer to that has to be no. Can the broken down wall of hostility ever be rebuilt? No. Can the reconciliation accomplished by Christ ever be unreconciled? Can we ever lose our citizenship in the household of God? Can the structure of the temple that is being built up by God's very spirit ever be broken down or undone? No. Can the access to God that we have gained by Christ's blood ever be denied at some later point? No. In chapter one, no, excuse me. The question then is this, how do we maintain our unity? How do we strive to maintain unity in the church with Democrats and Republicans and Libertarians, with people from such different classes and cultures, even people with just such different physical features. You know, I'm looking at Will, I'm looking at Chancellor, I'm like, man, these guys could not be any different. And our natural instinct as human beings is when we're around people who are different than us in any way, we don't push into the differences, we pull away from them. How can we, especially with so much sin still present in our lives, ever maintain unity in the church? Well, Paul tells us in verses one through three, Let's, let's reread these verses so that we can still have them fresh in our mind. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, if you remember from my last sermon on Ephesians 4, verse 1, we said that what it means to walk is to live, Right? So Paul is telling the Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He's saying, live like your salvation is true. Your life has to match up with what you profess to believe. 
And one of the ways that we can tell that somebody actually believes what they claim to believe is if they live like it. If you call yourself a Christian, we expect you to walk like a Christian, to live like a Christian. There's got to be a song in there somewhere. Walk like a Christian, talk like a Christian? No? Veggie tales? Okay. And, and, and Paul tells us that there are certain characteristics of somebody who's walking the gospel walk. There's more than this, but these are just some of the ones that he rattles off in his letter. So we're going to look at each of them in turn. Each of these could be a whole sermon in and of itself. We're not going to cover them completely in depth, but we're going to look at uh, four aspects of a gospel walk. Uh, Humility, gentleness, patience, and eagerness. Humility, gentleness, patience, and eagerness. So let's look at the first one, (coughs) humility. (coughs) C.S. Lewis noted that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, right? The real essence of humility is not seeing ourselves as these tiny, sheepish creatures. It's the freedom to not really be so concerned with thinking about ourselves. Humility is when we think more about God and others than our own selves, Humility is a lowliness of mind. It's a demeanor and disposition that is quick to see our own faults, our own sins, our own flaws, and a slowness to see the faults and the sins of others. And the reason why humility is a marker of a true gospel walk is because the gospel is so humbling. To say it another way, walking with Jesus is so humbling, or at least it should be. You know, you're, you're spending your time with Jesus who is perfectly pure, perfectly clean, perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly patient, perfectly meek, right? And we could just kind of go on down the line, just everything that we're not, Jesus is. And the more time we spend with Christ through his word and prayer, with his children in the body, the more we're just reminded we are not like Jesus. We are sinners And there's a reason why we need a savior. And that should humble us. I love the way one pastor says it. He says, humility is not a character trait that we can develop. Think about that. There's so many different virtues like frugality, which the founding fathers like to talk a lot about, that we can develop and practice with discipline over time. But true humility is not something that we can develop. It's only a byproduct of being with something greater than ourselves. And as Christians, the only way we can really truly develop spiritual humility is by being around Jesus. You look at him and then you look at yourself. You look at him and then you look at yourself. And if you do that enough, you should walk around going, wow, I'm not really that much to look at. Jonathan Edwards once wrote that there is nothing that sets a man so far out of reach of the devil as humility. And I would add to that that there is nothing that so protects the unity of the church as humility. Consider the contrast, for example, between the proud church member and the humble church member. The proud church member demands an apology for every slight offense. The humble church member sees in minor offenses a mirror of his own sins against God and others and is quick to forgive and is patient 
to endure and absorb the faults of others because they know that God has been patient with them and has endured much sin on their behalf. The proud church member cannot receive a rebuke or a warning or an exhortation without being defensive or deflecting or pointing it back at somebody else. But the humble church member says, oh, you have something to talk to me about? Okay, I'm actually more jacked up than you could ever know, and the odds of you seeing some sin in my life and that being accurate is pretty high. So yeah, brother, speak into my life, please. Sister, tell me something that I need to hear that's going to make me more like Jesus. The proud church member demands his own way in every minor detail of the church, in music, in child care, and in the kind of coffee, or if there is coffee, or if it's going to be London Fog tea. Did I say that right? Did I do that right? Okay. But the humble church member, he just says, man, I'm just thankful that these people have loved me and received me into this fellowship, into this community. Who am I that these people should love me and receive me? I'm just so glad that they're here, to be here, even if the coffee is terrible, even if the pastor does try to make me drink Diet Mountain Dew. The proud church member says, I just can't deal with these people, you know? I just can't. It's just too much. So-and-so and what's his name, and it's just, I can't deal with them. But the humble church member says, I don't know how these people put up with me. I don't know how they deal with me. Very real contrast. The humble church member sacrifices his rights for the good of others, but the proud church member demands his own way all the time. I think the humble church member personifies the attributes that Jesus put on display when he was here on earth. Listen to how Paul describes the ministry of Jesus. He says this. He had his mind, excuse me, Paul tells the Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Right? Jesus was, he was God, he was in heaven, he had everything he could ever want or need, but he didn't take advantage of those rights. He sacrificed them and he came down here to serve us. Much more can be said about humility, but let's move on to gentleness. Gentleness. Most older translations render the word gentle as uh, meek. So gentleness is meekness, especially if you read it in like the KJV. Um, We use the word gentle because we don't really use the word meek anymore. But it can be slightly confusing because when we think about gentle, you know, we think about somebody like, you know, handling dough. You don't want it to break. You know, you just got to be, China, you know, you just got to be very, very gentle. But that's not really what this word means. Meekness according to Aristotle, was to find the mean. It was to navigate between two extremes. If you think about anger, for example, meekness is to not be overly angry, nor is it to be absent of anger when anger is appropriate. Meekness is the ability to find the appropriate measure. I like to think that I strike this balance when I'm in traffic, you know? I just, I find the appropriate, I'm just meek in my anger. Uh, One commentator has said that meekness is the gentleness of the strong. Meekness is the gentleness of the strong. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Meekness is not the same thing as weakness. 
They're connected, but it's not the same thing. Meekness is to have the strength to put yourself in a position of weakness. Does that make sense? As the great poet Shai Lin has written, if you think being meek is weak, try being meek for a week. Chancellor, is that a bar? This quality of meekness is absolutely essential for our life together in the church. Let me just give you two examples of how meekness, gentleness, how they empower us to live together as peace, uh, excuse me, in peace as sinners in close proximity. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person in meekness or with gentleness. So, what do you do if you find a brother or sister in sin? Do you ignore it? Do you sweep it under the rug? I gotta be gentle. No. You, you confront it. You try to restore them. Remember, restore doesn't mean ignore. Restore means, hey, let's talk about this and let's, let's fix it. Let's, let's, let's repent and let's try to follow Christ faithfully. And that's important, but what's equally as important in the mind of Paul is the way that we do it. We have to restore people with gentleness, with meekness, right? With a spirit that is at once strong and soft, that is full of conviction but that conviction has to be tempered by humility. You know, to my fellow elders, this trait is particularly necessary for us because God has given us a very real authority as his leaders in the church. And if we don't navigate well, if we don't find the appropriate mean, we will do damage to the unity of the church. The church will take on our flavor. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, young Timothy, Young Timothy, who I'm sure grew up to be a fantastic pastor in the Lord, he told Timothy this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now notice, when he says kind to everyone, that doesn't mean that you never offend anyone, because after that he says you have to correct opponents, right? And some people, when they're being corrected, may not feel like that's very kind, but the way that you do it can cause somebody to feel like it's a kindness. Have you ever been corrected by someone and you know you should be angry, but you really feel served? That's what he's talking about here, a meekness in correction. Brother pastors, you have to know that our tone will absolutely trickle down into the life and ministry of this church as we speak the truth to one another in love, correcting, encouraging, rebuking, exhorting, all these things. If we don't role model this well from the front, it's not gonna go well down below. Um, I need a lot of grace. It's interesting to note that throughout the pages of Scripture, humility and meekness are almost always paired together. Let me just give you a couple examples. Listen to Jesus describe his own ministry. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Okay, Jesus, you got our attention. We're learning from you. What do you want us to know? For I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Later in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul taps into the same idea of uh, meekness and gentleness when he says this. He says, by the humility and meekness of Christ, I appeal to you. Notice he doesn't say by the authority of Christ, by the humility and the meekness of Christ. But then you think about Jesus' ministry, and maybe he didn't strike you as meek all the time. 
when he was calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees a bunch of whitewashed tombs, when he was saying that they were dead inside, when he said that they were a brood of vipers, when he said you have to be twice as righteous as these guys or else you're going to go to hell. He said things like, hey, just tie a rope around your neck with a rock at the other end and jump off of a cliff, why don't you, instead of doing what you're doing now, okay? He said a lot of really hard things. So was Jesus really meek and humble? Well, I think here it's helpful to note that uh, John Calvin once said that uh, a pastor needs to have two voices, one for fending off the wolves and another for caring for the sheep, right? One for fending off the wolves, another for tending the sheep. If you listen to Jesus' voice when he's talking to the broken, the poor, the destitute, the prostitute, those who are just shattered by sin and life in a fallen world, he has a very different tone than the tone that he has with the religious leaders who are causing people to go to hell. Now, to be clear, I think both of these tones fall in line with what Jesus says meekness is. It is appropriate, his voice, when he, when he is cursing the leaders. And it's also humble because he's telling them the truth that will save their souls. I remember being a young Christian listening to a lot of Paul Washer sermons, right? And, and, you know, there are only certain kinds of Paul Washer sermons that really go viral on the internet. And those are the ones where, like, he's rebuking kids for wearing Christian t-shirts, you know? Ah, you think those Christian t-shirts make you a Christian, but they don't, right? And he's just really, he's digging in. And, he's, and I'm, I'm sitting there as, like, a 20-year-old. I'm like, yeah, you get them. You tell them. Yeah, they're not like us. We're real Christians. They're not real Christians, right? And I just, everything about those sermons fueled me in my young idea of being a prophet, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. He really got my juices going. I would watch him rail against American Christianity. I thought, man, this guy is bold and powerless and fearless. And then I met him in person. And he was so soft-spoken, I could barely hear him. And he shook my hand. It felt like a dead fish, you know. Gave the guy a hug. He felt like he was going to break in half. Two minutes into our conversation, he's, he's asking me, so brother, how's your marriage? How are you loving your wife? How are things at the church? I just, I couldn't make sense of it. You know, is this a real Paul, Paul Washer? Or is this like a, you know, like, is, did they send a body double kind of thing? I don't know. Well, no, I think what I found out later was that Paul has two different voices. One for the wolves and one for the sheep. Both of them appropriately meek. I think about our brother Russell. You know, if, if you guys see Russell in the debate with an atheist or a pro-choice person, you know, he's just, he's very much like this, you know. But I've also sat with Russell in, uh, in someone's living room at one in the morning as he, with tears in his eyes, maybe a slight mist, you know, has just pleading with them, please turn back to the Lord. And, and he was so incredibly gentle and kind and, you know, two voices. You know, I don't think Paul Washer gets it right every time. I don't think Russell gets it right every time, and I know I don't get it right every time. But the thing is, we have to strive for this appropriate balance in our speech and in our ministry as pastors and as members of the church. If we're overly soft and wilting like a dying flower, we will never confront sin and we'll never call heresy heresy, and that will damage the unity of the church. If we are overly harsh and overly biting, we will wound the sheep, we will, uh, excuse me, we will crush the weak sheep, 
We will wound the strong sheep and we will probably scare away any goats that are sniffing around heaven's pasture. And that too will damage the unity of the church. But if we look to Jesus as our example of perfect meekness, it will go a long way towards our unity as a church. Number three, patience. When you think of the word patience, you think about somebody who's really good at waiting, right? Another long line, another traffic jam. They're good. These are patient people. They can sit there all day sipping their coffee, listening to their podcast on horticulture. Amen, Will? Okay. Uh, But that's not really what this word means. Uh, This word used to also be translated differently in the KJV. It was a little bit clunkier, but I think it feels more accurate in English. It was translated into the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. The word long-suffering in the Bible is made up of two Greek words, meaning long and temper, right? And really what it refers to is somebody who has a short fuse, people who are patient with others and are able to absorb a lot without it rattling them. Paul actually kind of goes on to explain patience. He says, and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. If you want to know what Paul means when he says patience here, he means your ability to bear with your brother or sister in love. And trust me, that word bear is appropriate because it is not always easy. Now, what you need to know about this quality is how closely it's related to mercy and love throughout the Bible. Just listen to the Lord describe himself to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Or Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God who is merciful, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. One of the reasons why God has not already destroyed this sinful world, tainted by evil as it is, is because he is long-suffering. And why does God suffer long with us? Because he is merciful and because he loves us. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. That is, he is long-suffering. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Because God is full of love and mercy, he is not quick to give us what we deserve. And if we really do belong to Jesus, if we really have been saved by this God who is so full of mercy and love, who has been bearing with us in love for so long, how can we then not be imitators of God and bear with each other in the same way? How can we not suffer long with each other? Just imagine how much less strife would exist in the life of the church if we were just a little bit more patient with each other, if we would truly try to suffer long. I'll just give you two examples. You think about this young guy, right, who Uh, you know, he's starting to get his head filled up with theology. He's learning a lot, you know, but he's kind of brash and knowledge puffs up and he's always making Facebook posts and saying things kind of sharply to people that he disagrees with, kind of doing some damage to relationships. Well, just, just bear with him. Just try to correct him, try to encourage him, but bear with him. 
who knows what the Lord may do in a couple of years, the way the Lord may round off those edges. Or think about that old church member, the one who is pretty unhappy about the way things are going now and wishes that we would do things the way we used to do them. You know? Well, bear with them. Who knows? Maybe they'll come around. Maybe they'll soon love the way things are going in the church. And the examples could be multiplied, but there are two tools I want to give you to help you to be more patient with each other, to bear with each other in the life of this church. Number one is this. Just consider how patient God has been with you, right? When you stop and you think about how patient God has been with your sorry but, am I allowed to say but? I just did twice, so I'm sorry if I'm not. But really, just, Lord's being patient with me right now. Just think about how patient God has been with you. First of all, he could have killed you and took you right out of the game before he ever saved you, but he didn't. Even after he has saved you and given you the greatest gift in the world, you have rebelled against him in 10,000, 10 million different ways. You have failed him in ways that you don't even know and you won't fully understand until you get to heaven. You have denied him. You have forgotten about him. And he is patient with you. And his spirit is still working in you to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. Well, how can you then turn around and be unpatient with your brothers and sisters? Number two, try and remember how patient others have been with you. Right? Just think about the way that people have suffered long with you. Now, if you don't think that people have had to suffer long with you, I would just encourage you to go back to the humility portion of this sermon and re-listen to that. Because I promise you, people have had to suffer with you long. I mean, I know it. It's just true. All of us are sinners. And when two sinners, or three sinners, or five sinners, or 50 sinners come into close proximity with each other, there's going to be friction, and that friction will lead to a fire. There are untold number of minor offenses, even in this church, that somebody just absorbs out of love for you. Do you know that? You've probably said or done something, even in this last week, to offend somebody in this church. But people have been so patient and so kind with you. Think about those professors, those teachers, your parents, your friends, your siblings, whatever the case may be. And as you look back on their kindness, their, their, their patience with you, doesn't that spur you on and make you want to be patient with others? Now, you may be saying, Sean, people haven't been very patient with me. People haven't suffered long with me. They've been actually really impatient with me. Well, that's probably true in the life of the church as well. But you know what? Just stop and think about how that made you feel. When they were impatient with you, when they didn't absorb those sins, when they, when they weren't willing to work with you and be patient, it probably made you feel really bad, really angry, really upset. Well, just say, I don't want to be like that. I want to be better for somebody else. I don't want them to have to experience what I feel. Now, you'll notice that in verse 2, Paul says that we have to bear with one another in love. In love. What this means is that patience for us cannot be a mere stoic virtue. We can't just do it as, as people who are sort of duty-bound to obey this characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. No, we actually have to love the people that we're being patient towards. Love is the glue that holds this whole thing together. And love being the glue is not some preacher's illustration that I just made up. Paul says that very thing 
in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul has just told the Colossians how to live together. He says the same kind of things here. He says, put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, right? Same things, right? And then he says this, above all, put on love, which binds everything together. But Sean, what if I'm so angry or so frustrated or so hurt that I just, I can't feel the love that I need to feel in order to be patient with my brothers and sisters? Well, friends, that's why I think the covenant is so important. In marriage, we enter into a covenant, right? And in that covenant, we say, hey, listen, come what may, I'm committed to you. Even if I don't feel like I love you, I'm committed to loving you. Rich or poor, right? Happy or uh, healthy or sick, it, it doesn't matter. I'm committed to loving you. And the same thing is true of our church covenant in the life of this church. Whether or not I feel like loving everybody in this church all the time is beside the point. I've made a commitment to love you. When someone joins this church and we walk through the membership process together, we look at the statement of faith and then we look at the church covenant. And what I tell people is our church covenant is you committing yourself to love this church even when we act unlovely. And we will act unlovely, I promise you. You know, proud dad, I wish I could stand up here and say like, you know, my kids are perfect and straight A's and they never mess up, but that is not true at all. Proud pastor, I wish I could stand up here and say that we're perfect as a church, that we never sinned against each other and there's never any disunity, but that's not true. I, I can't even pull that off. So our church covenant is saying, listen, okay, I know somebody's gonna sin against me. I know somebody's gonna offend me. It may even be one of the pastors, but I'm committed to loving you even in spite of that. As Paul was wrapping up his letter to the Christians in Thessalonica, he urged them to show unity in the way that they lived, and he said this, live in peace with each other. Okay, but how? He says, admonish the idol, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. So, i.e., do ministry, right? Speak the truth to one another in love and be patient with them all. You see that? Paul doesn't say, hey, if you wanna have unity together as a church, you just gotta sweep everything under the rug. You just gotta pretend that this friction doesn't exist. No, you admonish the lazy people in church. You encourage the people who are faint-hearted, the depressed, the anxious, Right? You help the weak, but the way that you do it, you have to be patient with them. You have to endure with them over not just a day, not a week, not a month, years as we do life together in the church. Uh, I want to just take a moment and thank all the members of Sixth Avenue for bearing with me, right? for suffering long with me. In my first two years of being a pastor, you all have been so incredibly patient with me as I have made pastoral blunder after pastoral blunder. Um, I've never once felt like you all were wavering in your commitment to me or my family and your love for us, so I'm so thankful for you. And now I just wanna charge you, brothers and sisters, to continue to live out this unity with the kind of patience that God has shown to us in his son. Finally, let's move on to the last sub-point here, eagerness eagerness. Paul says that if we want to walk out the gospel in our lives, we have to be able to maintain the unity of the church. 
And he tells us how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to do it eagerly. When you read the commentators on this, they all basically say the same thing here. They say it's impossible to translate into English the force of this word in the Greek, eager. They, it's something like, do it now, go. Go now, do it. It's so important, you gotta go right now, do it. Something like that. One word, like 50 words in English, but language is weird, right? How can we convey this sense of eagerness in English? That's what it left me wondering, right? If I, okay, if I can't communicate it well, well, how can I try to get this point across in English? And then I thought about it. Uh, you know, you just know somebody's eager when you see it in them. You, you can just, <laughs> she's eager. You can just tell somebody, you can tell when somebody is eager. So I think that there are four characteristics you can see in an eager person. Number one, Eager people are intentional. They are intentional. That is, they don't wait for the thing that they're eager for to sort of providentially come into their circle, into their influence, into their, into their sphere. People who are eager for something, they wake up thinking about it, and they plan at the beginning of the day how to acquire what it is that they're after, right? They're just super intentional. Eager people are creative, when somebody's eager for something, they are so creative in different ways to acquire that which they want to possess, right? Last week, we talked about evangelism and creativity in our evangelism, and we talked about encountering a brick wall, and sometimes when you encounter the brick wall, you got to go over it, or you got to go around it, or you got to dig underneath it, or you got to blast right through it, right? And people who are eager to save souls, when they encounter a wall in their evangelism, they don't just go, ah, there's a wall, you know, missionaries who want to take the gospel to closed countries, they don't go, oh, well, I guess the country's closed. No, they find a way to get the gospel there. And the same thing should be true for us in our eagerness to maintain unity in the church. We should be creative in ways to accomplish that task. Three, diligent. People who are eager for something, Man, they are just, they just plod, you know? They're just diligent, one foot in front of the other. They just cannot be stopped. They have their eye on the prize, and they cannot be easily moved. And fourth, perhaps most importantly, people who are eager are joyful. When you stop and think about it, it makes sense, right? People who are eager don't usually pursue something begrudgingly. We're not usually begrudgingly eager for something. What eager people are after is usually something that they care about. It's something that they love. It's something that will cause them to wake up early and go to bed late and to sacrifice in a thousand different ways. When people are eager for something, even that which they have to sacrifice, they can count that as a joy because they want what they want so badly. There are any number of different things that can destroy the unity in the church, but I think I can summarize it with these three. Sinful attitudes, sinful actions, and sinful beliefs. And the only way to uphold the unity that God has given us in his church is to be eager to maintain that. And in order to do that, we must remember that Jesus loves the church. If we love the church the way that Jesus loves the church, we will be eager to fight for unity in the life of the church. Now, I know the sermon's running a little long here, but I want to, I got to get this out there. 
there is a way that we can misapply this command from Paul. And it's, it, it has often been misapplied. There's a way in which we can strive after unity in the church that actually undermines unity in the church. You see it all the time. You saw it with big tent evangelicalism in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. An example now from uh, our times would be the United Methodist Church, right? When they were trying to figure out what to do with gay and lesbian clergy, when they were trying to decide on matters like the uniqueness of Christ and salvation, and they made a lot of really bad, unbiblical decisions that undermine the gospel, a lot of people wanted to leave the United Methodist Church. A lot of churches wanted to break off for the sake of gospel unity and unity with God. But there were so many people in the United Methodist Church who kept saying, no, look here, we have to maintain unity. But friends, you should know that that is not at all the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. That is not at all the kind of unity that Jesus aspires, to, uh, wishes that we would have. The unity that we're called to maintain is a unity of truth and love. A unity that doesn't call sin, sin is not unity. A unity that doesn't call false teachings false is not unity. It's like fool's gold. You ever seen fool's gold before? You know, it looks and feels like real gold in every way, but it's, it's not valuable at all. The same thing is true of this kind of unity. I think C.S. Lewis helps us to think well about this when he says this. He says, seek unity and you will find neither unity nor truth. But seek the light of truth and you will find unity and truth. I think this way of thinking about unity is right, especially if we remember that believing in the truth is what gives us our unity in the first place. That's why Paul says in chapter one, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's only when we heard the truth and responded appropriately to the truth of the gospel that we were then unified to God and unified to each other in the body. You take away that truth and you take away any hope of unity in the church. Our unity must not be like the unity of the world that just sweeps sin under the rug and that pretends that lies are true just so we can all get along in the same shared space. I think the easiest but perhaps the most counterintuitive way to pursue unity with each other is to first and foremost pursue unity with God. If we are uni unified with God, if we love the things that he loves, if we hate the things that he hates, and if we believe things to be true that he has said are true, well then we will have perfect unity. There's more that can be said about unity, but perhaps not more that should be said today. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope that you see something special here. I hope that you understand how amazing this weird little room full of people is. I hope you can perceive our love for each other and our love for Christ that brings us here together when we could be in the park or at home, in bed still asleep. Maybe I don't know how lazy you guys are on Sundays. We could be a thousand other places, but we're here. We have a special kind of unity. And it's all because Jesus has loved us and he's made us into one family.
If you want to know more about how to be a part of a family like that, well, it's so simple. All you have to do is turn away from whatever you believe to be true, whatever you believe to be good, and turn to God and what he has said is good and what he has said is right and what he has said is true. And if you turn away from your sins and if you trust in Christ, you can be received into this one body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us love and we thank you for giving us your spirit which empowers us even when we may not feel that love. We pray that you would be with us as we go back out from this place, out into the world which is so broken and disunified, and we pray that we would be a shining example and that we would pique the curiosity of those who don't know what it means to belong to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.